Last week, we concluded our series in Genesis, and it was such a sweet and rich study, and it gives us opportunity before going on to the next book to pull back and really seek the Lord for this month. We're going to do a one-off series that is really picking up where we left off last week in our study of Genesis. So we saw from the writer of Hebrews exhorting us to press on that God brought us up out of the land to bring us into the land of promise that we were redeemed by the blood of the lamb, not just to be forgiven and be left there, but to actually grow in relationship with Christ Jesus and to become like him and to press on to know him. And he's called us to that together. We talked about how the faith that God gives us comes with a motor and we press on together forward into all he's called us to. So for this month, we're going to be looking at the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Jesus, going back to first principles of what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow him and to worship him in spirit and in truth. In today's world, it seems like everyone and everything is vying for our attention. You guys can feel that. I think if I was to use one word when I ask people in our church how they're doing, if you could if you could imagine one word, if I said, hey, how are things going? What do you think the one word is? Busy, right? Just busy. They might say it three times, you know, busy, 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 right? We're just busy. We're more connected than we've ever been before. And by all studies and all accounts, more lonely and more anxious. And it feels like life flies by at a breakneck speed. And so many of us feel like it's all we can do just to tread water, just to keep our heads above water. And we spend most of our time reacting to life as it happens to us. And we're usually left feeling guilty for our inability to manage things, for all of our good intentions, that we wanted to do things that we have left undone and we wanted to be somebody that we've not been. Anybody? We're left with feeling guilty over good intentions and for not being who we hoped And our church is not immune to this. This is a worldwide problem. This is a church worldwide problem. It's a church in America problem. It's a disease. But we're not immune to this. And I think what we'll find at the bottom is not mainly an attention issue, though it is that. I think at the very bottom we'll find an affection issue. That this is not just a time matter. It's a worship matter. And so I want you to turn with me to the book of Revelation Uh, We're going to start in chapter 1. Revelation is the very last book of your Bible. Um, Side note, I want everybody in this church to read the title of it carefully and realize how many revelations it is. It's just one. So don't say revelations because it's just one revelation. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, given to Jesus Christ to give to his people. This is what... It is, and as I was praying about where our church is, and after seven years thinking for our anniversary, I'm just praying for a few things for our church, looking at our church family and pastorally praying for what we need. The Lord led me to this letter, and it's interesting because the very first study that we did as a church through a book of the Bible was to the letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians. And so here is, uh, in the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus. And what we're going to see is that all of these letters that Jesus writes to these churches, these actual churches in modern-day Turkey, at that time were written to real churches, but they were written to real churches to all the church for all of time. It is to us. And so the very first thing I want you to see is who is writing the letter. Right? This is Jesus' revelation he gives and entrusts to John. But look at the description of the one who is writing the letter in chapter 1. And I'll begin in verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis 
to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These are town names, real churches and real towns. He could have said, and to Brattleboro. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, spoiler alert, this is the risen Lord Jesus. The son of man is a reference to Daniel's vision that he saw of the one who would receive the kingdom that would endure forever. So John is seeing the risen Christ. It said the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now I want you to remember who's writing. This is the Apostle John. This is the one who spent day in and day out with Jesus in his earthly ministry. And here he sees Jesus in all of his glory risen. And what happens? Jesus, my best friend. I'm the disciple that you loved. It's so good to see you. He falls on his face like a dead man. This is what happens when we catch a vision of Jesus as he really is. We fall to our rightful place before him. And all our familiarity goes away. And this is what John said. He laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he proceeds to write these letters to these seven lampstands, to the churches that he listed. And this first church that he chooses is the church at Ephesus. Now we know from our study, this is an actual people in an actual place. Ephesus, you can read about the start of this church in Acts 19. And in a lot of ways, very similar setting to where we find ourselves today in Brattleboro and in America. This church was established with miraculous power in a city of great wickedness. This was uh, a city that was shrouded in idolatry. They had there the temple of Artemis. It's one of the seven great wonders of the world. And it was three to four times larger than the Parthenon in Greece. And the practices that surrounded this temple, well, people, all of the city revolved around it. And the practices there were so morally debased, I can't even describe them here with kids in the room. But the, the priestesses and the priests that were there serving in the temple and how they worshiped this God was so sexually immoral and debased that uh, even the, the philosophers of the day said, that the animals were more moral um, than the people at Ephesus at the time. So this is the place where this church was formed. And Paul, in Acts 19, you see, spent years there, preaching, reasoning, visiting them, admonishing them with tears, ministering from house to house. He saw people turn from idolatry to serve the living God. People were taking their magic books and burning them. They were destroying their idols. Handkerchiefs from Paul were being taken to people and people were being healed. They were seeing miraculous activity in the, form of, uh, in the formation of this church. And as Paul says farewell to them in Acts chapter 20, he describes his ministry to them, how he loved them and admonished them with tears, and he warns them about false teachers that would arise from outside and inside the church, and he tells them to be on guard against false teachers. The leaders that this church had at the foundation of the church were like a who's who of the early church. They had the Apostle John and Timothy as pastors in this church. Some say that Mary, who John was uh, left to take care of by the Lord Jesus, lived at Ephesus for some time. So you talk about leaders in the church. The mother of the Lord Jesus, the Apostle John, Timothy, Tychicus, Paul started the church. They received the, the letter of the Ephesians, the, one of the most power-packed gospel-laden books 
of all time, and it was written to this church four years after Paul's farewell. So I say all that to say, that's who this letter is to. They could not have had a better foundation than the one that they had. They couldn't have had better leaders, a better start, or uh, be set up more to be a faithful, Christ-exalting church. And you need to know that throughout all of these letters, as Jesus writes them to these churches over and over again, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And they're exhorted that these letters are to be read in all the churches. So I want you to hear this, because at the outset of this, when you hear some of these letters, I think our default response is to be defensive or for them to be for somebody else, right? Especially if he says hard things. I want to try to convince myself that this is not to me. Or to think, wow, we have a one-off sermon and this is the one that Ben chose to preach. But I want you to hear this. This letter, Jesus says, is to all the churches, meaning it's to us. It's to the church there in Ephesus, but it's to us collectively as a people, as a group. So not just to you individually, but to Rivertown as a whole, this letter is for us together. And it is to you individually because he says, if you have an ear, everybody raise your hand. If you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to you as a church. So I'm, I've been praying for us, Lord, make us poor in spirit because this is the grievous thing that I've seen happen over and over again through seven years of preaching in this church and in preaching in churches before this. Usually it's those that are walking most closely with Jesus that are most convicted over their sin, who are most responsive to a word from him and it's those that need to hear it the most that don't hear it. So we have to be on guard against meeting this letter with a defensive posture or with a cool, indifferent posture instead of being poor in spirit and humble and open and say, Jesus, speak to me. Correct me. Teach me. I want to change. And we'll see from the content of this letter, our I think our prayers will be, if we're poor in spirit, if we hear what his spirit is saying to the church, then there's a lot that a humble posture would pray in response to this letter. So let me pray for that for us before we read it together. Father, Lord, I'm so mindful that this is a gift, a revelation from your hand, your spirit to us, to your church. And you have commanded us, if we have ears, then hear me. And I pray that we would, Lord. There is a way of hearing and not hearing, not really listening, of seeing without seeing. And we don't want that to be us. We want to come to you as humble disciples who have an ear to hear what your spirit is saying, and who respond. So, Lord, would you pierce us with your word? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you convict us and lead us forward? For the glory of your name, Lord. For the witness to your name in this town. Lord, so that we might be the church that you've called us to be together. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 2. Now listen, this voice is coming like a waterfall. We read that from chapter one. This is a powerful voice resounding from the Lord Jesus saying to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. 
If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So I want you to see first that this letter begins with a commendation from the Lord. He says, He walks among them. He sees them. And I want you to know this. He is here right now, and he sees us. It's one of the things that we saw last week, that all of us are open and laid bare before the word of God, and there's no hiding from him to whom we must give an account. So there's no hiding from Jesus in this moment. But he sees you. He knows where you're obeying, and he knows where you're disobeying. He knows where your love is pure, and he knows where you've drifted. And so he comes to them, commending them for where they had been faithful. Now he says to the angel of the church at Ephesus, and there's, it's really unknown if this is to an actual angel who's presiding over the church, more likely the word means messenger. So it's to the messengers of the church at Ephesus, the leaders of the church, to take and give to the church this message from Jesus. But either way, his word to them is, I walk among you. He knows our works and he commends Ephesus for these things. And so the first thing is, what is true of Ephesus is not necessarily true of us. So this is the first place that we lean in and say, God, may the things that you commended and loved in the church at Ephesus be true of Rivertown Church. He said, you've toiled patiently and endured meaning they've not surrendered to their circumstances. They've not caved to the false doctrine and to the cultural worldview around them. They have held fast to the truth and have stood firm. They've tested the spirits, as John writes, to see whether they are of God. And they are on guard and heeded Paul's warning to be on guard against false teachers. They've not born with false teachers and they've guarded doctrine and contended for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints they've been faithful in this and so that's the the first thing before we move on and say yes praise God for Ephesus praise God for a church that is serious about doctrine and is on guard against false teachers and they've been that together may we cry with all of our hearts Lord let that be true of us let that be a commendation that God sees in us that we are a people who love God's word and we love doctrine and we've been faithful that we have patiently endured persecution and trials instead of getting tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of circumstance and doctrine, that we have held fast to the truth and we have been patient and faithful and enduring. And so that's the first word from the, church, from the Spirit to us as a church is may we follow Ephesus' example in this, that we would be a church that is on guard against false teaching and false teachers and who holds fast to the truth and love and endures and, I love this, bears up for his namesake. This is a sweet church. They are faithful to the word of God and they're doing things for the right reason. It says you've bared up, listen to that word, for my namesake. This is a church that's passionate about the glory of Christ they're passionate about doctrine. They're passionate about the word of God. They're passionate about defending the truth. They exposed the Nicolaitans and hated their false teaching. Now, we can't spend a ton of time here. We don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans, but we know from a letter that he writes two churches later to Pergamum that they're mentioned alongside of Balaam, who was a false teacher in the Old Testament, who led the people of God astray into idolatry and immorality sexual immorality for personal gain. And so, uh, like Balaam means in Hebrew, destroyer of the people or devourer of the people with this false teaching. Nicolaitans means the same thing in the Greek that it comes from this word that means Nicolae, like Nike, victor, conqueror, and then Laos of the people. So it's the same thing as Balaam, that these were those who would conquer or devour the people with false teaching and through seeking to 
to seduce them and lead them astray from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ and truth to his word. And so the Ephesian church, like Jesus, hated the work of these false teachers. They were robust in the battle in the midst of the constant onslaught of idolatry and humanism all around them. They defended the truth and they were faithful to Paul's warning against false teachers. By all accounts, this is a good church. You look at it from the outside, it's a faithful church. Even among the, the churches that Jesus writes to, this is among the most faithful of the churches. This was the mother church who planted all the other churches that Jesus writes the rest of the letters to. This is a good church. Sound in doctrine, doing things for Jesus' namesake. But in verse 4, he gives them this massive warning. Verse 4, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. And church, this is, this is piercing. And this is where I'm pleading with you for us to be poor in spirit. Because this is what I'm afraid of. That when you hear Jesus' voice, you either only hear him say, I have this against you. And that's all you hear, right? It's really the devil's voice condemning you over and over again and accusing you. And you feel like God's there as maybe a version of your dad. And you've only ever able to get it wrong. You don't feel his love. You don't sense his love. It's just only disappointment and only I have this against you. But the other ditch that we are so prone to is Jesus has rescued me from all my sin and from the consequences of my sin and he would never talk to me like this. That we have a version of grace that makes it to where Jesus couldn't look you in the eye and say, I have this against you. And so it's a good question for us to ask ourselves and to ask of others who know us, what in my life or of me would Jesus be against? Do you have an answer for that, believer? To actually allow God to take inventory of your life and say, God, where is there? This is what the psalmist pray. Show me hurtful way in me. Show me what you're against in my life. Now, his answer to us this morning, he says, if you have an ear to hear it, his answer is that you've abandoned your first love. That's what he's saying to his church this morning. And this word for abandon is that you gave it up. It's the same word from Romans chapter 1 where it says that men gave up a natural desire for that which is unnatural. It's an exchange of truth and a true love for a lie. So Jesus is confronting this doctrinally sound, does things in his name, patiently enduring church. He's confronting them. And he says, you're sound in doctrine, yes, but what happened to your heart? Where did your delight go? Where did your desire for me go? He called them, like he called us, like he calls all of his people, love me with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And they had given up their love of God for other things, for other good things. They were sound in doctrine and cold in heart. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. I think this is the most pressing cross-reference so we would see what does it mean? What does it look like? How does God feel about us giving up our love? And is it really that stark? In church, I would just say, if he can say it to the church at Ephesus, he can say it to us. You think that Ephesus would hear something more harsh or more dire warning than he would give to us as a church? But listen to this. I read this this week and I wept. Jeremiah chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, 
I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And then in verse 5, he says, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? He's saying to them, I remember when we first started, when the love that you had at first, how you were following me, how you came after me. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went away from me, that they would give me up? Verse 11. He's, he's calling heaven and earth to witness. He's saying, look around. Go to the coast. Go to examine all the nations and see if you can find such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. This is heart-wrenching. He is saying that the nations have more faithfulness to their false gods and to their idols than his people have to him, the only true God. That there would be people in our world who are more devoted to Allah or to their version of Jesus in a false cult or religion than we are to a holy God. And so in verse 12, he says, be appalled. This is your God talking. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and be shocked and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is this twofold sin. This is where God is confronting the Ephesian church. You left your first love. Where did you go? You have forsaken the fountain of living waters and you've gone after broken cisterns that cannot satisfy you. That's the only other option. If you've left your first love, you're always loving. You're always giving your worship and giving your love to something. And so if you're not giving it to God first as your first love, you're scattering your love and your worship abroad in the streets. It's like what God describes in Ezekiel chapter 16 when he tells Israel, I betrothed myself to you. I found you. And I beautified you with my own holiness, and I betrothed you to myself. And then you trusted in your beauty, and you played the harlot. You, you went out to the street, and you opened yourself up to anybody who would pass by. And God talks about in Ezekiel 6 how he had been hurt by them, by their adulterous hearts. And this is what James says in chapter 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not realize that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Do you not realize that God who put his Holy Spirit in you jealously yearns over your heart and over your worship? And so he tells them, this is James writing to people who are professing faith in Jesus, saying, be miserable and mourn and weep. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. He says, you double-minded. We have to be able to rejoice in a gospel that has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, where he has removed our guilt from us and hear words from the Lord where we, are, we have gone astray. And he says, I have this against you. Yes. Are you justified by faith? Yes. Has he perfected for all time you who are being sanctified? Yes. And he looks you in the face and says, I have this against you. Where did you go? Where did your heart go? Where did your worship go? And it's as if he's telling them in Ezekiel 16, the honeymoon was over, your love cooled and your heart wandered. And so I've been praying for this as I pastorally seek to apply this to us because it needs to be applied in context to us as a church. And so there are things about us, collectively true as a church, that you need to know. This letter comes to Ephesus as a people. 
It's hard for us to understand in our American and New England rugged individualism where you think this doesn't apply to me. But if it applies to the church, it applies to you. When he writes this, he's writing to a people. This is why I say when God speaks to this church on Sunday mornings or in places where he's called for you to be, you need to be here to hear it because he's speaking to you. If he's speaking to the body, he's speaking to you. And so as I was praying through where we are as a church and praying through this text, this is the, the phrase that keeps coming to mind, that we have a distracted discipleship. We're too busy for Jesus. We're too busy for each other. So often we're squeezing him into our lives if we do it all. We seek him if we can. If we have time, we'll give it to him. And we'll obey him if it works out. After I do all these other things, then I will offer him my obedience. But the question is, does Christ have preeminence and priority in your life? Does he have your heart, the first place, your first love? Or are you serving him leftovers? And this is the question we have to, we have to ask ourselves with honesty. Do I want him more than I want anything else? Because like we've said often, to quote Piper, the essence of worship is wanting. The essence of this kind of love, this kind of first love that worships him in spirit and in truth, that fulfills the first commandment to love him with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength is a love that wants him that prefers him to other things and that isn't just following my feeling but that obeys him because he's the master. This is a heart issue. It's a love issue. It is a love. These two words have come to mind over and over again in praying through this series, intimacy and resolve. It is a love that has intimacy in it where you have a walk with God in a secret place that's not contingent on other people. We cannot be a church that functions like AA, where you go from meeting to meeting to meeting and you survive based on other people's relationship, other people's resolve, other people's intimacy, where you have no intimacy with God of your own in secret. And Jesus says, I have this against you. You value my word. You value doctrine. You go to your discipleship group. You go to Sunday morning stuff when you can. But where's your heart gone? Where's your worship of me in secret? But it is not just a love that has intimacy, it has resolve. Jesus gave us marriage as a parable of the union between Christ and his church so that it would paint a picture for us. Now, if marriage has become a mockery, it's no longer a good picture. But marriage in its truest form, as God designed it and gave it to us, is a covenant. And it needs both intimacy and resolve to work. You just think about your marriage. If you had all resolve and no intimacy, as one writer wrote, it would be all drudgery. But if it was all intimacy and no resolve, it would be a mockery. You need both. And the same is true of our relationship with the Lord Jesus. I was reading this week, it was just sandwiched in between our conversation and message last week from Hebrews about pressing on to know the Lord. And this week, and this article caught my attention. It was by Eric Raymond, and it was called The Path to Apostasy. Now, remember last week we said, you know, people come up with fancy words for the apostasy that's happening, like deconversion or deconstruction or exvangelical or whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, there is a mass walking away from Jesus. And that walking away from Jesus begins by going from drive to neutral, that it looks like neutral at first. And so this article caught my eye. He says there, the path to apostasy is paved by bricks of apathy toward Christ. If you want to persevere, then give attention 
to your affections. And so this is my encouragement, my exhortation, the warning to us as a church. If your love for Christ has dwindled to embers, there are only two directions to go. You cannot stay there. You cannot stay neutral on Jesus. You cannot keep your love at an ember-like place. We need to fan it to flame or it will flame out. Now, the ember phase, to go with the marriage illustration, is on the path to let's just keep it together while the kids are in the house. That's where that leads to. You go from not feeling it, being frustrated, the affection's not really there, the feeling's not there, the resolve's not there, and you say, you know what? We'll just keep it together until the kids are in the house, and then it'll all blow up and break apart. There's no love, there's no relationship, but there are the motions. So Raymond in this article says, look, the path to apostasy begins with neglect, and then it goes on from neglect to indifference, and then from indifference to frustration. Now we'll explain. So neglect, I'm going to read you this one quote from the article, and then I'm done with the article. He said, just as an unhealthy diet will affect the body, so the negligence of spiritual food will, have, will adversely affect the spiritual life. Here I mean neglecting of the Word of God, personal Bible reading, prayer, meditation, corporate worship gathering, and community life, service and discipleship. This withdrawal may seem simple and harmless, but it is an active disconnect. It is a brick in the path toward apostasy. Not all neglect leads to apostasy, but all apostasy is paved with bricks of negligence. So hear me. It's a warning. You neglect these things that are means of grace for your communion with God, your own personal Bible reading, your own prayer, your own meditation. You neglect the gathering of the church despite the fact that our master said, don't neglect gathering together as a church. You get away from fellowship with the, with the community of God. It could have all started with a busy week. And then one busy week led to another busy week. But what happened is you got by. You got used to it. The busyness stacked up on top of each other. And all of a sudden, before you realized it, you were managing your life and still felt this ember-like love for Jesus from a distance and you cultivated this habit of merely surviving on an ember's love. Instead of God's word feeling like a delight, a place to go and worship, where obedience was something that you did with joy, it now became a matter of felt need. When things get bad enough, when things get desperate enough, it wakes me up and I will... I will go to the gas station and fill up just enough to keep from being empty. And you have lived there. But like Raymond talks about, that negligence, the, ne the neglect of the everyday means of grace that Jesus has given you for stoking your first love and for enjoying him and for pursuing him leads to indifference. Where all of a sudden you wake up and Christ isn't as glorious as he seemed to be before. Sin doesn't seem as sinful, and heaven begins to sound more far off and ethereal, and the things of earth seem more pressing and relevant than these spiritual pursuits. All of a sudden, the people of God feel more distant and, and less relatable than the people that you spend time with. And, and all of a sudden, you're just thinking in terms of what seems practical, or you, right? You've come to a place where you feel like that's good for everybody else, but it doesn't work for me, and this is the way that I do it. But the warning is you can't stay in an ember-like place, right? You're either going forward or you're going backward. Nobody stays neutral on Jesus. You cannot. You cannot live at an ember. You will flame out if you don't stoke the flame. And so what he says is you eventually will reach this impasse because you're unable to challenge what you feel with the mind that's been feeding on unbelief. If your mind 
has been indifferent to the things of God, then you will be unable to challenge and confront the lies in your heart of how you feel and you'll reach a frustration and then you walk away. This is the warning of a heart that has cooled in its affections towards Jesus and a heart that doesn't take seriously the commands of Jesus. In Matthew 24, verse 12 and 13, Jesus is describing people in the last days. It says, false teachers will arise. They'll seek to lead many astray. And in verse 12, Jesus says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. He's talking about people professing love for Jesus and their love will grow cold. That is going to happen. It is happening. Verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So this is not like there's, there's a category of Christians who are really white hot for Jesus and who love Jesus and are pressing on to know him and enjoy him and obey him. And then there's a kind of a Christians that just kind of live in a frustrated space and live at an ember-like state and just stay there. That there's not two versions of Christianity. He says there are those whose love grows cold and there's those who endure to the end. And the ones who endure to the end sustained by the grace that Jesus supplies and who go on loving him and obeying him to the end, these are the ones who will be saved. And the ones who try to maintain life at an ember will wake up one day with a heart that's flamed out. Their love has grown cold. There was the appearance of love before. It wasn't that their love was cold and it always was cold. It was they had this appearance of love for Jesus, but their love grew cold. And so as that quote that was at the beginning of the article, if you want to persevere, then give attention to your affections. So what does Jesus tell us to do with this? If you find yourself in a place where you are convicted by Jesus saying, I have this against you. You don't love me like you used to. We cannot have that be said of us as a church. Don't you want to be a church that says, that church goes on loving him more and more. That church goes on from faithful to greater faithfulness. That church goes on from obedience to more obedience. That church is known in their town because they haven't hidden under a basket. They are shining as a light, like a lampstand. And they go on loving him more and more, faithful to the end. May it not be said of us that we left our first love and that we as individuals get convicted about it one Sunday and then go on exactly how we were. Instead of this letter is to us together as a church, you are accountable for yourself and for how you hold your brother to a truer and purer love. We are in this together. So these commands come to the church we talk about this often. If these use in the Bible, if you could see them in the Greek, they say y'all. You need to break free from the individualism. It's a, it's a you guys. So what does he say? He tells them to remember and then two times to repent. Now there is much at stake here because he says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So do you know what he's saying, Rivertown Church? Doctrinally sound, hold fast for my name's sake, patiently enduring. If you don't love me, then you will cease to be a church. I will come and remove your witness. Now we, he says to a later church in Revelation chapter three, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So let's read it in this letter in verse five. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Now this remember, repent, repent are any tense in the Greek that means a point in time. So he's not saying, hey, eventually when you get around to it, this is an imperative command that says, right now. I'm not, don't put this off for later. Don't put this off for another day. He's saying, 
You have abandoned the love that you had at first. You've given me up and traded me out for other things. You've invited other loves into your heart and have diluted your love for me. You have a distracted love, a busy discipleship. Repent right now. Come back to me with all your hearts. I think it's, it's wonderful for what he commends them for. But he's the one that gave them grace. It's amazing they have a passion for sound doctrine. It's amazing, amazing that they're patiently enduring. He's the one that's giving them grace for that. They would not be able to do any of that apart from his gracious enabling. But he doesn't sit there and say, I love this about you. And it's enough. It's enough. He says, I know that you're patiently enduring. But you need to repent over your wayward love, over the way that you have left me. I want your heart. I want your affections and your worship. And I just wonder if you think about in Luke chapter 7 when he's looking at the woman who's washing his feet with her tears and the Pharisees are, are appalled by it. And he's, he goes on to tell this parable about one who is forgiven much, loves much. Is that not true? And you know that you have been forgiven, then you love with all of your heart. And so he looks at this woman, he says, this woman whose sins were many loves a ton because she knows how sinful she is and she is blown away. She sings and means it amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? She couldn't sing that with a cold heart. She didn't just utter the words without meaning it. She was washing his feet with her tears. And so the question is, if you've left your first love, have you forgotten the magnitude of his love and the glory of his forgiveness? That like Eric read, while we were, God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Have we lost our awe of his mercy and grace and so lost our gratitude and our joy? I think about this often for us. I just, I look at the promise of walking in the joy of the Lord and his joy being our strength. And I look out and I say, where is our joy? But if, if the DNA of joy is gratitude, then I think what happens is we get so distracted and so busy and we get so focused on our performance and trying to do enough and be enough. And then when we fall short, we feel guilty. And so what does everybody in this church do when we feel guilty? We confront it head on. Are we honest about it? Or do we go and hide? It's like getting a text message from somebody and then feeling bad that you didn't respond or feeling bad about what they're saying or they're reminding you of something. So you just ignore it. That happens literally all the time in this church. But it's indicative of a larger problem, right? That we're so busy, we don't have time for our brother. It's not a non-issue. We're all buried in our world, in our circumstances, in our lives. And Jesus is waking us up to a truer love of him and of each other, where we would actually be awake to his grace and his mercy and see passages like Ephesians 2 where we read, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved you, made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he did it all so that in the coming ages, he could lavish you with his grace and his kindness. If that is true, what on earth is bigger than that? If God is for you, who can be against you? If he has declared you a son or a daughter, then is there not joy for you there? How can we get away from our love and be so distracted where all of a sudden our circumstances loom bigger than God and then maybe because you feel guilty because you've left this place of intimacy and you haven't chosen to stay there by resolve whether or not you felt like it or not we feel guilty and so we live in this far off place where our life is too big for us our circumstances are too big for us we wonder where God is and then to cope with it we go to lesser loves and Jesus is saying, wake up. I want you. I want your heart. I want you to be blown away again by my grace and by my mercy. Remember? That's where the first command, remember. Do you remember? 
what you were guilty of, what you deserved? Do you remember when we first started how you were blown away by my grace? How you would give anything just to serve me? How you surrendered and you obeyed with joy? Do you remember that? Come back to me. Come back to your first love. Turn from the loves that you've traded me for and stoke the embers into a full flame. But I don't want you to miss this. Returning to the Lord with all of our heart will lead to acts of obedience. When we get intimacy right, it will result in obedience and resolves that are fueled from the faith and intimacy with the Lord Jesus. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or John the Baptist talks about bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. If our repentance is real and we come back to the Lord with all of our heart, it will lead to ground level daily obedience to him where we've come back to the place where he is our master. And if he said it, I'm going to obey him whether I feel like it or not. If he said it, I'm going to believe him whether I feel like it or not. And that same Jeremiah text alerts us to, be, to beware of a fake repentance. Beware of a fake repentance. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 10, God says, Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. Now something about them wanted to appear to honor the Lord enough to have the appearance of repentance. So I don't know what this would look like for you, but just know that it is possible to want to repent, to want to, to, to want the idea or at least want the appearance of loving the Lord with all of your heart, maybe because the idea of turning away from the Lord or apostatizing terrifies you, so you want to repent and you want to appear like you're repenting. But it is possible, like we saw last week, to have lips that honor him with hearts that are far from him. And so he goes on in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12. Go and proclaim these words to the north and say, this is God telling us what true repentance looks like. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. So do you hear this? This is God calling to us saying, I am merciful and I am your master. Return to me and obey me. Be broken over your sin. Be broken over the way that you've given me up for lesser loves and other things, the ways that you have scattered your favors abroad. What does he ask of us? He said, acknowledge your guilt. I want you to be honest. I want you to be honest with yourself. I want you to confess this to me. I want you to confess this to one another so that you can receive healing from the Lord. He will be merciful. He will pardon he is a gracious and a merciful God, but what he requires of his people is to forsake what they traded him for and return to him. That's what he goes on to say in chapter 4. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among the thorns. So I want to give you just from these two passages, just three quick, this is how we repent. One, return and acknowledge your guilt. Acknowledge your guilt. This is where repentance starts. You think about the prodigal son and the father that runs to meet him. What he was waiting for was a son to return. This is what he calls us to. This is all Jesus is saying to do. You have left your first love. Go and do all these things and then you can come back to me. No, no, no. Repent. Turn from your lesser loves. Come to me. I will pardon you. 
Remember your first love. The scriptures are so clear. We love because he first loved us. This is not Jesus saying, if you love me, then I will love you back. He's saying, you've left your first love. Don't forget, I am the one who redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I redeemed you to be a people for my own treasured possession. And you have left being my treasured possession to go treasure other things. Be shocked and be appalled and repent. Two, he says, if you repent, it's to him you should repent to. It's to him you should return to. So I say, come all the way to him. He is not cleansing us from a distance. He is both our first love and our master. And so that's where we're going to be in this series is that he commands us to delight ourselves in him and he commands us to obey him. He is both our first love and our master. His commands are not burdensome. They are a joy to obey. So if you are living in a far country because you've busied yourself away from spiritual disciplines, away from means of grace, away from Jesus, away from loving him, then you do not have this long journey back. He said, get on your knees and acknowledge your guilt and I will pardon you. Jesus has opened a living way for you through his blood. The way is open. You don't have to earn your way back in. You are welcome as a son or as a daughter today for mercy and grace in time of need. And then three and lastly, he says, break up your fallow ground. And this is a bit where we left off last week. He says, remove the detestable things from your life and remove the thorns. This is like the writer of Hebrews saying, remove sin and the things that so easily entangle you from your life so that you can run the race with endurance. And so every believer in this room needs to ask yourself, what are the things that are keeping me from a pure and simple devotion to Jesus, from a pure obedience? And I continue to think there are things in our lives, things that God put his finger on years ago for some of you, that he's going to point back to today. When I say that, what are the things? There's instantly something came to mind. And for some of you, you instantly go to, no, not that. No, it's probably not that. It's probably something else. I'll just keep thinking on it. I'll keep praying about it. He says, sow not among the thorns. You have thorns in your life, believer. We all do. The thorns, Jesus describes the word sown among the thorns in Luke chapter 8. He says, the word gets choked out by cares and riches and pleasures of life and the fruit does not mature. As for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Bear fruit with patience because the Holy Spirit is at work in you. In this journey of sanctification, it takes time and fruit grows slowly, but it grows assuredly. And if there's no fruit, it could be because this word keeps getting sown in among the thorns, the cares of this world riches, pleasures of life, the, the things that you turn to when you need a break, the place where your mind goes when you get a minute. It's the things that we're addicted to. And it's so easy to look at people that coming out of bondage, that I'm talking to people that have real addictions to drugs, real addictions to substances that you've been on since you got off of drugs, or addictions to your phone where you're sitting down for time with Jesus and a notification goes off on your phone and you smoke it and leave him behind and everywhere in between. And he is saying, this, this is not just like a, a little thing. He's saying, you're abandoning the love that you had at first. You go and open yourself up to any passerby, any notification you get, anything that opens itself up to you and you'll go for it. You know why? Because you've left your first love. You don't love me like you used to. And so literally, isn't it shocking? He's calling the heavens to witness. Be shocked that I lavished these people with my grace and called them to be a people when they were not a people. And I raised them to life when they were dead in their sins. And they will give themselves to the first notification that comes up or to the first thing that passes up or to pretty much anything else. He says, repent, my people. You know why? Because I love you. He will not 
give up on you. He refuses to. Those whom he loves, he reproves any discipline. So be zealous and repent. He comes to us in love and calls us to remember from where we've fallen and to repent. If we don't, then we can remember the days when we used to be a church. But this is a word to us together on our seventh birthday. And I've been praying and I'm praying that you would pray through it with me. It's, it's not a secret that I love this church. I think for a lot of you, you love it too. And I'm not talking about an organization. I'm talking about people. I love you. And I think for most of you, you have an affection for one another. But I also think that it is so possible for us to get so wrapped up in life that the things that we care most about, we just feel bad about not prioritizing. And I'm going back to what I said at the beginning. It's not an attention issue. It's an affection issue. We can say that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we can say we love our brother. But if all we mainly do is love ourselves, then we're deceiving ourselves. And so he is calling us to repent and love him from the heart. And you have a part to play in the affection and resolve of your brother and sister so that we press on together in a witness as a church. So Eric, you can come back up, bro. But I want to respond to this. And I want to say, if, if you would be honest with yourself and you're here today or you're listening online and you would say, man, I don't know if I'm at an ember. I don't feel any love for Jesus. Then I would, you need to hear if you have no love for Jesus, you're not a believer. Jesus said, if God is your father, you would love me. Paul writes at the end of 1 Corinthians, if, if anybody does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Meaning, let him know that he is outside the faith and that he is destined for an eternity apart from God if he has no love for our Lord Jesus. So this is not a secondary issue. But... This is not a, let's stoke up our love so that we can be saved or so that we can be sure that we know the Lord. It is a, if you know him, he gave you a new heart that loves him. And so stoke the flame. So if your love has waned or cooled to an ember, hear your Lord today who loves you and is reproving you. If you have a form of godliness with a heart that's strayed, repent. Repent of a distracted love, of a professing love that's too busy for him. Repent of a half-hearted love that gives him leftovers. Repent of trading him for his gifts. And let's be broken before him, a humbled and surrendered people who are not content to live with a half-hearted love, but who together, confessing sins to one another and pressing on, let's acknowledge our guilt and come to him. And he will renew us. He will revive us. He will stoke the flame that we cannot stoke ourselves. But what he says is, come to me. I want all your performance. I don't want all, this, all these other things that you've offered to me besides your heart. I want you. The simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus is what he wants. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, we do. I, I just want to pray on behalf of all this church together and voice this to you. We repent collectively as a church. None of us has loved you as we ought. Lord, we do not want to be a people that looks back on previous seasons saying, I wish I loved the Lord like I used to, or we wish we served and loved him like we did. Lord, for some people, they're here, their love has never felt like it was white hot for you. Lord, would you search and try us, but my greatest prayer for this on our seventh anniversary our birthday, 
that you would be pleased, Lord, to revive our hearts and to give us a breakthrough, a breakthrough that we do not deserve. But that is what you do. You are a gracious and a merciful God, pardoning iniquity and visiting thousands and thousands of generations with your steadfast love. And so, Lord, would you look upon us with kindness like you have begun to this morning in giving us a wake-up call. Lord, please, may there not be one who hits the snooze that sets the alarm for another day, another time. Lord, may we who have ears hear what your Spirit is saying to us as a church. May we repent and give you all of our hearts. All to Jesus we surrender. All to him we freely give. We will ever love and trust him and in his presence daily live that we would surrender everything to you and seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and let everything else that we are so prone to worry about fall into place as we love and obey you with all of our hearts. Lord, give us grace to really repent in truth and to seek you with whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.